This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Today on the show, we have Nancy Teisted Copel. She is the editor of the Pioneer Girl Project and its series of books, the most recent one being the Revised Text. Prior to this, she was the editor-in-chief of the South Dakota Historical Society Press, where she edited numerous books about South Dakota history and its line of high-quality children's books. In recognition of her lifetime work in South Dakota history, she recently received the Doan Robinson Award. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is the third book in the series of what's known as the Pioneer Girl Project. Uh, I was wondering if you could just briefly describe the first and the second series to kind of um, provide some context for the listeners. Well, um, you know, the the Pioneer Girl Project actually started in early 2010 uh, when the press had just finished negotiating with the Wilder Estate to publish Wilder's handwritten draft of her autobiography, which uh, we did in 2014. It was called um, Pioneer Girl, the Annotated Autobiography, um, which was edited by Pamela Smith-Hill. After we finished negotiations, which took a year, Mm -hmm. uh, we established the Pioneer Girl Project because we intended to annotate the autobiography. So we set up a research team basing basing the Pioneer Girl Project loosely on the Mark Twain Project uh, at the Bancroft Library and the University of California Press. We had high aspirations. Yes. We, we, we took that as our model. Okay. Uh, and then in 2011, we also began the Pioneer Girl Project website to share our findings as we worked, quote, to create a comprehensive edition of Wilder's Pioneer Girl, as well as works based on her life and career. Um, when we set this all up, we really only had two books in mind, uh, The Annotated Autobiography and Pioneer Girl Perspectives, which is a book of essays by Wilder scholars that explore the n- new insights that the original manuscript provided, the publication of the manuscript offered uh, scholars new, new ways to look at it. Um, okay. But as we work with a huge volume of manuscript material uh, that Wilder and her daughter Rose Wilder Lane generated, um, we came to understand that a comprehensive edition uh, needed to be interpreted more broadly. So sometime in 2013, we began to uh, negotiate with the trust again for two more books. And the first of these, which is just out, is called Pioneer Girl, the Revised Text. And it contains the three revised typescript versions of Pioneer Girl that Lane typed and edited for her mother. And then the fourth book, which Mm we uh, hope to release next fall, is called Pioneer Girl, the Patent Fiction. And it collects all the manuscripts that derive from the revised text and result in Wilder's first novel, which was The Little House in the Big Woods, published in 1932. So in the end, what we hope to have is a a record of the complete evolution of Wilder's adult biography into an autobiographical children's novel. 
and it's really a fascinating story. Right. We'll get into the the text and the different uh, versions and so forth in a bit, but with this with this book, you're really showing, as you just said, kind of that evolution from the autobiography to the children's novels. I was wondering if you could describe what was the intent originally with Laura. Uh, she wrote the autobiography with the intent to get it published. Is that is that correct? Yes, I think what happened was that uh, Rose Wilder Lane, asked, have, you know, had been kind of encouraging her since the early twenties, actually early, even before that, to write her life story. And um, in 1929, 1930 was, was the Great Depression, of course. Uh, Lane had lost most of her money in the stock part, uh, mm. market, as had her mother mm-hmm. and father. And so she was scratching around for fresh material to publish. And um, so she, I think she encouraged her mother to write it out at that time so that they could try and publish it as a serial in the magazine. And so that's what, that's, that's how it finally got put on paper, I think. So that, that first audience was meant to be a magazine reader and say Saturday Evening Post reading these stories of a, of a woman who had been on the, on the prairie as a pioneer. Right. Okay. Um, right. 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 words? What what did they kind of shoot for? Or did well, they skip you know, past they that? Lane had been doing this for some time, doing these serials for the, for, um, the Country Gentleman, the Ladies Home Journal, McCall's Magazine, different magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they usually ran in three installments over, you know, three episodes of the magazine or three issues of the magazine. Um, and actually, I'm not sure what kind of page count that would have been. I'd guess six to 9,000 words per installment. Mm-hmm. So who, who do they shop this around to, and they get told no by everybody and then go back to the drawing board, or how does that... How's the realization <laughs> yeah. happen that uh, the magazines, that this isn't going to work, or I have to try something else? Well, Lane sent it to her agent. Lane, Lane was a pretty well-known writer by mm-hmm. this time. And so she sent the manuscript originally to her agent, and he circulated it. I'm not too sure where he circulated it because he returned it within about six weeks saying, I can't market this. Uh, this won't sell. And so that's when Lane took it, went back to the drawing board and re-edited it. And um, then she sent it back to her agent, who still didn't like it. <laughs> Mm. So she started actually taking it around to the magazines herself. Okay. She went to the Ladies' Home Journal, I think it was, Good Housekeeping, uh, Saturday Evening Post, and they all just turned her down. They said, you know, like her agent had said, that it just didn't have enough high points, didn't have enough crescendo. Um, Lane hadn't really structured the, the manuscript into chapters. You know, there were she mm-hmm. hadn't broken it apart in any way, so it it really was pretty flat piece of of writing. Okay. And so, you know, they started. That's where everything. That's the jumping off point. <laughs> okay. So then, who comes up with the idea of um, shifting it into a, a fictional account? 
Um, that's Lane's idea. And okay. I think there's two two um two ways that came about. First I think the magazine editor, she quotes the one of the magazine editors as saying, This would be great if it were fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just too flat as nonfiction. And um also she doesn't say this, but the manuscript is pretty limited in its scope in as much as it just covers uh, Wilder's youth from the age of two to the age of 18 when she got married. Okay. So it, it's limited in its, in its range um, as adult fiction. So I think Wilder started to, or not Wilder, but Lane started to think, oh, this, this book might be better as a children's book. Okay. And what was Laura's reaction to that? You know, we don't know for sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we don't... This The thing about... We know... Actually, we do know. She started to do exactly what her daughter suggested. She started to turn it into a kid's book. Okay. Um, now, did she... But her actual reaction to the fact that Lane had started to fictionalize it um we don't really have that um they were at that point in time they're living uh, together in missouri and they just there isn't a paper trail oh i see well there's a very limited paper trail Uh um well it's kind of an odd relationship really to be become (laughs) a when you think about it a wildly best-selling author Often prompted, inspired, cajoled, and and directly edited by your daughter. Uh, um, yeah. Talk about that relationship while they're well before they were writing and editing together. Uh, what was their relationship like? And then as they went through this process to the create a fictional account, how did that relationship change? Well, you know, um, I, Lane Lane was pretty much a self taught writer. Mm-hmm. She she had she'd learned her job at the San Francisco Bulletin in California. Um, she, she read profusely. She read novels and, and wrote her opinions of them in her journals. She read uh, manuals about how to write. Um, so she had, she had some strong opinions. And she started, she started coaching her mother to write, um, I'd say almost as early as 2014, 2015. She thought her mother should, could uh, bring in more money uh, for the farm in Missouri if she uh, wrote for the farm market. Okay. Um, so she coached her really from an early time frame. Um, you know, I think at the very beginning the relationship was very unbalanced. Uh, Lane was was the far more experienced writer, mm-hmm. um, and she her career just kept ascending. So she she had she had she was quite uh, confident in her ability to to not only write but to edit other people. And Lane was just, in my opinion, a born editor. She edited mm-hmm. everybody. She edited her 
friends. She edited her boyfriend's work. Uh-huh. She edited her mother's work. Okay. I mean, she just, <laughs> she was more of an editor than a writer. Okay. Well, and wasn't she, um, I mean, she had been abroad, right? She'd been in Paris, and she'd covered well, uh, aspects of, she, yeah. By 1930, she had been. She she um, didn't go, she went abroad about 1921, I think it was. She worked for the Red Cross, um, mm-hmm. and she she just traveled around a good portion of Europe and um, into the uh, Armenia and, the, and, and that area of the world. Right. I think the a recent South Dakota Journal has an article about her coverage of the Armenian. Um, yes, it was by uh, Sally Ketchum. Yes, yes. That was a, that was a great article. Um, yeah. Well, um, and, and there's going to be the fall issue of South Dakota History, this upcoming, well, it, it will be out um, in, a, I'm not sure when, it'll, mid-September, I believe. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to um, have an article about uh, Lane's writing about the railroad in the hard winter of, 2020, of uh, 1881. Um, okay. So... You can look forward to that. Yeah. Um, Laura's first writing, though, wasn't this autobiography or novels. It was for newspapers. You you mentioned a bit about that. Does that kind of training for a weekly or daily? Um... She wrote a, essentially a weekly column okay. for the Missouri Ruralist, okay. which was uh, her hometown newspaper. It was the Springfield newspaper, um, and she. She began that in 1907, I okay. believe it was, and she wrote for consistently for that through 1924. Okay. And she previewed a lot of her, uh, a lot of biographical episodes, autobiographical episodes in that column. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that as the book is laid out, now I wonder if we might talk about just the structure of the book. Um, sure. A bit. You have the uh, first off, the cover, uh, s- astonishing. I mean, the striking uh, painting and the illustration on the cover. Um, I think readers will find it uh, really quite impressive. And um, the teamwork effort of the uh, Cody Ewart, Roger uh, Hartley, Jacob Juris, Jennifer McIntyre, Jeannie Odie. Um, uh, this is a big, a big book. Uh, a complicated mm-hmm. project, and uh, so it took a lot more than than uh, your um, awesome and and uh, <laughs> experience and talents to put together. I mean, it's it's quite a quite a project. Just this one book, um, much less right. the four of them. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of walk through um, the three versions of the book that this book. Um, explains and go from the editors uh, and the and the sale to, or the attempted sale to get that version done, and then the, no, we got to do it again, and and just kind of lay it out for the listener on why is there three versions in this one book? And well, it's I'm I'm I expect frankly there were more than three edited versions, mm-hmm. um, but these are the three that survived, and. Um, what what 
Lane did when she edited her mother. She took her mother's handwritten material and then began to type and to edit as she typed. So one of the very first things she does in the first manuscript, which is called the Brant Man Man Manuscript because it's named after uh, Lane's agent, which was who was Carl Brant. Okay. Um, so so she she the first thing she did was is is cut the first line <laughs> of her mother's story, which began something like. Uh, I can't remember. Once upon a time, long and long ago, uh, in Indian territory, this happened. Uh -huh. um, she so she takes that off, you know, and we start out right away with a line from Pa says that says, "Here we are. We might as well camp." And um, oh yeah, and from and from that point on, um, Lane just begins to take to. to Clean up the autobiography in the sense that if there's somebody introduced that is not um, particularly relevant or she deems them sort of peripheral, she takes them out. Uh, just willy nilly, they're gone. Mm -hmm. um, so the first, the first manuscript, that's the sort of thing she did. And it's called the Grant Manuscript. And that's the one that her agent sent back within six weeks saying, this isn't marketable. Okay. And, and so that's the first manuscript. So then at that point, Lane says, okay, this, this, I got to re-edit. I got to read this. And um, at that point, you know, it's, this, most of this is you can track in Lane's diary. She was a, a religious diary keeper. Okay. And um, she, you, can, you can follow this story in her diaries. And... Um, at this point, she does a couple of things. Um, I think, first of all, she asks her mother for more details, for more stories, for more background. Uh -huh. um, and at the same time, she begins to revise it. And so that's called, this. the next manuscript is called Grant Revised. Okay. And that's, that's not, that doesn't survive in its entirety. It's a partial manuscript. The whole hard winter is gone from it. Um, I suspect because Lane took it out to take notes on it for a book that she, or for an article she was planning to write or a book she was planning to write, and um, just never got it back into the to the manuscript. Um, so this is Grant revised, and at some point in this manuscript, where and this is where the the new episodes first start showing up. The, there's the, bend, the story of the benders in Kansas. And okay. There's a story about um, the Gordon Stockade in Black Hills. There's there's new material. Um, and this this we can trace, with the exception of the Bender ed, ed episode, we can trace most of it back to handwritten uh, insertions that Wilder wrote up. Um, so we know that Wilder was participating in it at this point. And, um, but at some point, Lane decided this manuscript needed more editing. So she started doing handwritten edits on both this one and the Brandt manuscript. And um, at this time, too, she started what she called a juvenile uh, based on her mother's Pioneer Girl okay. story. So Brandt Revised never circulated. Okay. It was just a a working copy. 
Um, and then once she decided what she was doing, she cleaned up Grant, um, and she also did a very interesting thing. She went to her own story of, uh, of this juvenile and started putting some of that material into buy, which is what's called the buy manuscript. Okay. Because at this time, she got disgusted with Carl Brandt as her agent and chose a new agent called um, George Bai. Okay. And so Bai, the Bai manuscript, uh, is the final one that uh, survived. And this one circulated. In fact, this is the one she took to the various newspaper editors. And it's also the one that she consigned to buy. Uh, who tried to circulate it, or, you know, who circulated it for a couple more years before they gave up on it. Okay. So those are the three manuscripts, Grant, Grant Revised, and Buy. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of evolution in the story between, you know, the annotated autobiography and tracking it through these three books, mm-hmm. or these three typescripts. Now, is the last version still... Uh, an autobiographical form, or is it more fiction? No. Well, it's still autobiographical. It's still, I did this, I did that, Yeah. as opposed to the children's books, which are uh, third-person fiction. Okay. There are, however, episodes that just really never happened, such as the Bender episode. It couldn't have happened Uh the way uh, it's written in 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 the typescript. Right. Well, it strikes me that this is a book that writers will really dig into. (laughs) One could become um, passionately, actively involved in reading this book and sorting out the the textual analysis that that you've done and that that, uh, Rose and and Laura did on their own work as they went from version to version to version. What does that say about... Um, writing as a process? <laughs> well, you know, um, quite a bit, actually. Um, uh, um, I don't know that it says anything exactly, in, you know, explicitly. It, it implies a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the implied lessons is, is, or one of the implied stories is that you do need to pay attention to your editor and your agent. <laughs> um, and right. that, that's, the, that's one of the things that Wilder eventually learned, that her daughter does, in fact, know uh, quite a bit, and she, she comes to accept that. Um, but it doesn't mean she ever subordinates herself uh, entirely to her daughter because Wild, these are Wilder's characters, um, and she knows them far better than Lane does. Uh-huh. And she's constantly correcting her daughter, her daughter's interpretation, which is one of the things that, you know, is 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 a a, a pro, not a problem. It's a, it, it's editors have to be careful not to uh, misinterpret what the author is saying. And you can see that throughout. You can also see that not every uh, edit Lane made was an improvement. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question or not. Right. But I don't know. Like I said, I think most of the lessons to be learned by writers here and editors are simply in, in, 
they're implicit. They're not. Uh-huh. You, you have to follow the cross. Right, you have to follow the cross. And as the, as the, well, and the book is laid out so that readers can kind of follow the version of the cross and turn the page That's and you're right. on the next uh, paragraph and you're following those versions across. Um, right. What, what falls on exactly. the... Uh, go ahead. No, that's exactly right. That's what I was saying. What falls on the cutting room floor that, by the time they get to the last version, that Laura mourns the most? Well, you know, I don't know that she mourns uh, this, but one thing that really struck me as I was looking at the various uh, rough drafts that come out of the Silver Lake, the by the the, the the first season or the first years that the family is out in Dakota Territory, mm-hmm. um, there's this episode, there's this Wilder talks in her biography about discovering that cows would produce more milk if you sang to them when you were milking them. Oh. And so she, she, she references this in her autobiography, and then she tries to insert and then what's important to her is the fact that she had discovered this mm-hmm. years before the the universities started to to, to experiment and uh, and and uh, verify the fact in the 1930s. And she wanted to give herself credit for this discovery uh-huh. on her own back in the 1870s, 1880s. And she kept trying to introduce it. She introduced it in the original place she put it. She introduced it one time when the cows go dry, and she had the cows go dry, and then she told her father, you have to sing to them. And, and it just keeps, it just keeps, Lane just keeps ignoring it. She just doesn't put it in. Uh-huh. Um, when she's doing it, typing or having it type in the, in the draft. So, you know, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, you know, I really can't say why I think Blaine didn't make that, didn't didn't allow that uh, in the book. Um, but I think in some ways it was just a con- an exercise of control over her mother. Oh. Um, she did it because she could. Hmm. There's there's an edge to the to the relationship. Yeah. By, by 1937. Yeah. Um. The sources for this research, uh, the you mentioned the, um, I think the papers in uh, Mansfield. Where where are the documents that were, or was it the Hoover Library that you already talked about? That what's there right. today? It, if somebody it, goes to the library, what would they find? If, the, if they go to the library, they'll find these manuscripts. Actually, they're typescript, mm-hmm. and they the original versions are at the Hoover Library. At the uh, and they have they bear the same names that we give them, mm-hmm. Grant Grant revised and by okay and um, and then there's just the Hoover Library is just a is a, is a wonderful resource. It, it there's letters between Lane and Wilder. There's letters between Wilder and other people, the editors mm-hmm. uh, that she works for. There's there's letters between Lane and just an unbelievable. Uh, number of, of writers of the time period. Um, so it's really wonderful. Hmm. Um, yeah, I imagine she had living in San Francisco and being a part of that writing world and so forth. And um, right. 
She probably she is. have a lot of lifelong friends that ended up being editors or novelists. Right. Or not. Um, what's, uh, what remains in South Dakota then? What's in DeSmit as far as the... Well, DeSmit has an amazing, you know, amazingly rich life uh, archive, the Glorenville Wilder Memorial Society, mm-hmm. um, which is also has, you know, maintains the property, the Wilder properties. They also have an archive that they've been collecting for four years. And yeah. It includes uh, letters from Wilder, and Lane and Carrie Ingalls. Oh. Um, there's a manuscript, a short manuscript there by Charles Ingalls about the discovery of the, uh, or the uh, founding of the Smith. There's letters from August Sherwood, who was mm-hmm. the editor and, and actually was um, Wilder's first, oh, the keeper of her legacy, I would, I would call. Mm-hmm. Um, he corresponded not only with Wilder herself, but also with publisher about how to, you know, uh, market the books and what have you. Um, And then there's also Eliza Jane's um, homesteading account. Eliza Jane wrote her story three different times. One of those verses. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's just, you know, they actively collect. They have have the, um, some of the court cases that um, Paul worked at when he was justice. Right. Um, they just have a lot of material. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's, it doesn't have the, the depth of the Hoover, for example, but it, it has some really interesting documents. Right. Uh, one, one last question. Um, as this <laughs> is a history podcast and so forth, and we talk about change over time, how have readers changed in their... Um, appreciation of the Laurel Wilder novels. How do you think that, why do they persist uh, to be a popular seller? Well, I, I think they're really classic stories. They're, they're, they, they feature this cozy, supportive family that exhibits courage and survives against great odds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of classic story that, that we like. Um, I think what has changed in the last uh, years is that um, I think people or readers are, are now more aware of their own prejudice. And they, they really, you know, kind of the inherent prejudice of, of the human race. And um, I think modern readers really struggle with the, the, with the prejudices of the 1880s that were still persisting by the 1930s. When these books were read, or were um, published, mm-hmm. and so I think there's there's just a, a less of a level, level of comfort with some of the, you know, the ways in which uh, minorities and Indian Indian tribes, for example, are treated, and that's 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 how you know we've we've evolved right. uh, in our understanding and appreciation and and that. I think that's one of the things that's rewarding about reading Mark Twain or Lawrence Wilder or anything that was written prior to the 1960s or 70s is that the 
you see how far we've come in some ways, just in the language and how it's used and so forth. So That's correct. Yeah. Yep. And you can see some evolution of that in, in the in the manuscripts where, you know, you can see a greater awareness that some words aren't, aren't appropriate and they, and they get changed. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Well, Nancy, uh, we wish you all the best with the book. Again, the book is called Pioneer Girl, the Revised Text, just out this week from South Dakota Historical Society Press. Uh, wish you all your luck in uh, working on the next one. <laughs> Thank you. There's a, a long train of events, but this, these uh, four books of this is the third, but the, the total of four books uh, will really make um, Lorengel's Wilder aficionados quite pleased with this. So well done, and congratulations, Nancy. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs> <laughs>